Hey, everyone. Welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm your host, John Kane, uh, flying solo again this week. Um, look, I want to welcome folks uh, in Washington, D.C. The show is broadcasting in Washington this week, but not in New York. Um, and of course, we are doing Facebook Live, um, live streaming, and uh, that'll stay on, you know, a couple of my pages, uh, including the WPAI page. Um, so uh, many of you will get a chance to catch up with what I'm talking about here. And I am talking about the report that came out this week from the Interior Department on, uh, well, their volume one, their investigative report um, on boarding schools or otherwise known as residential schools, uh, federally funded Indian boarding schools. Um, look, I, I see a lot of the stuff posted. I hear people praising and thanking Auntie Deb you know, Alan, for for coming through with this. But, you know, I can't help it. I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I'm cynical. I'm I'm actually angry. Some of the stuff that I see in these in, in this is just so superficial, still mischaracterizing what these schools were about, what what their function was. I mean, when I when I hear them say that this was about cultural assimilation and dispossession of land. I'm glad to hear them say the dispossession of land issue because that's something that has not been widely um, uh, you know, talked about in this. It's, it's always, there's always been an emphasis on the harm done to children, on the harm that has been done, you know, not just the violence and the, the, the rape and abuse and neglect and malnutrition and, uh, and all that other stuff, but the murder. And, you know, coming out of Canada's uh, revelations of, you know, finding more and more of these unmarked grave sites, burial sites, we know that there are tens of thousands of Native children that died in these schools in both Canada and the United States. One of the numbers that came out was out of this was, oh, we, they've confirmed 400 deaths. 400 deaths? That's one school, Carlisle Indian School. They had over 200 marked graves. They've, they're undoubtedly unmarked graves, and they sent children home to die. I, I had Pre Preston McBride on here, and he talked about how his analysis, when, when he was studying this, determined that there may have been five or 600 people children who died as, as a direct result of Carlisle Indian School. So throwing a low number out, even though the caveat is we know there's going to be more, throwing that number out, when we know that there's been thousands that, of numbers that, or, or deaths that have been documented, confirmed, only looking at a fraction of the schools on the Canadian side, it's, it's a misdirection. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just a misdirection. For those of you who don't know who, what residential or boarding schools are, these schools were funded by Congress uh, in, in what was it called the Civilization Act. Uh, they started in 1819, and they existed for, for 150 years. 150 years. And in its heyday, 83% to 85% of all Native kids were ripped from their homes and sent to these prison-like schools. 85%. And we're talking about ages from four you know, to, to 18. 
four years old to 18 years old. And you know what? When these kids graduated from these schools, they oftentimes had no family to return to. They had no place to return to. And here's why. And, and again, I'm glad they talked about dispossession of land. Because this wasn't really about civilizing Native people. This wasn't really about assimilating Native people. This was about taking our lands. This was about destroying us. This was about not just culturally assimilating us. Because if you were only trying to culturally assimilate, you wouldn't have to take the land, right? And if you were only trying to culture, you wouldn't have to have, have, have the abuse. Look, I get it. You can, you know, one of the ways to really change somebody's behavior is to, is to torture them. But there were, the amount of death associated with these schools. And, you know, look, <laughs> disease was allowed to run rampant. Tuberculosis, I mean, the, by some accounts, the mortality rate was over 50%. For a child going in, for children in a school, you only had a 50% chance of making out of there alive. Less than that, you know, during some of the, the worst of these times. And, of course, when, when you had epidemics like, you know, whether, whether you're talking about um, some of these flus, that, you know, these epidemics that have, that have gone through, the Spanish flu, the, you know, uh, tuberculosis, the worst medical care of all came to, came to these Native children. And, in fact, there were many Native children who died of things that were far less serious than, than something that was deadly. And they died simply because they didn't have proper, um, you know, uh, medical attention. A, a, a simple wound could be a death sentence. So, look, and I'm going to say it right now. I think this is a complete misdirection. Deb Hallen, the Interior Department, just came out of this, um, this crap show uh, associated with uh, the National Indian, or now it's called the Indian Gaming Association, their, their annual you know, event. I think they did it out in California. And they play, basically told everybody, they told the Seneca specifically, you got nothing coming. We're not going to do anything about the past. We're not going to do anything about you know, the current situation. I don't care what New York State has done to you. We don't, I don't care how much you've been screwed. We're not doing anything. But if you like and you want to help us, we can change some of the rules for the future. So they tell the Senecas, you got nothing coming. We're not going to help you. There's, and, you know, and, they, and they give some, you know, some statements, well, we couldn't do this because we couldn't do this because. And most of that is just crap. They chose not to do some of these things. And, and they even said, look, if, if you don't help us um, you know, change some policy, we don't know what the next um, administration might have from a policy standpoint. You're not doing anything different than the previous administrations did. And then this comes out. Big, you know, lots of beautiful pictures of Deb Haaland in her, in her you know, native <laughs> dress and, you know, all, all of her, her photo shoots adorn some of these posts that I've seen. She looks great. But the content of this stuff, I mean, and then, then I read some of this stuff. Um, <laughs> this reflects an extensive and first ever inventory of federally operated schools. Really? We've, uh, we have been, uh, had our own assessments of these things for, you know, for decades. We, we told you what the abuses that were going on. And in fact, there, there was reports done uh, on this stuff before. And, but there was never any action taken. 
And even here, the only thing that's being talked about is, oh, yeah, we're going to revitalize language programs. Oh, yeah, you killed our language. That was part of the, part of the goal. But you were killing our children. And you're offering now language programs? And what, some infrastructure stuff? Remember the dispossession of lands thing? Look, this wasn't about cultural assimilation. This was about destroying who we are. Let me remind people again, what defines genocide? Any one of the five of the following things constitutes genocide. Killing members of a group. Um, causing bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Inflicting conditions that intend to destroy, physically destroy the group, in whole or apart. That means creating the conditions where a people will cease to exist. I mean, when you talk about, you know, assimilation and, you know, destroying culture, which, which is really whitewashing this thing. What we're really talking about is creating the conditions where people will cease to be those people anymore. You're talking about eradicating identity, not just culture, identity. You're, you're talking about taking away who these people are. And if you're fortunate enough to survive the school, you will not be what you came there, uh, who you were when you came there. That was the goal. The goal was so we wouldn't need land anymore. So this, this had several cogs along the way. Part of it was depopulation. Kids died there. Well, that, that serves a purpose. There, was, there were sterilization programs. Oh, let, let, I'm sorry. Let me go back. I'm sorry. Let me finish, let me finish the genocide. Again, killing people, causing bodily or um, um, physical or, or mental harm, inflicting conditions to destroy the group, preventing births, and taking children. Those five things, any one of them by themselves, constitutes in the international, under international law, a punishable offense called genocide. And you know, these, these schools existed after genocide was, was defined as a thing. So the United States doesn't get the grandfather. Well, all that stuff took place before we, we even really had genocide. No, that's not true. In 1913, they were already calling denationalization a war crime. Denationalization. Denationalization was stripping away the character of a people, the national or, you know, or distinct character of a people, and then replacing it with the, with, with the, with the national character of somebody else. Now, that word is now folded into genocide. But 50 years or 40 years before there was even genocide, countries around the world were saying this idea of stripping away somebody's identity, national identity, and imposing another identity upon them, they called it a war crime. Even when they were at, at war, this was considered a war crime. Look, I know I've talked about a lot of this stuff before, but I, I, I've got to go through it again. I've got to go through it again, and, and i got to keep going through this stuff. Residential schools were genocide. Not cultural genocide, not spiritual genocide. They were genocide. They killed children. They harmed children physically and, and mentally. They created conditions that would destroy our people. They, they 
inflicted sterilization programs on our, on our women, on our girls. And they took our children. It was genocide. And in fact, you could almost say that it was textbook genocide. If you wanted to figure out the best example of genocide, residential schools would be it. One could even argue that the definitions of genocide could have been drawn from the United States and the residential school and their boarding school policy. Well, let's look at what the United States did to Native people, and then we'll define genocide from that. Well, that would work. But the United States never been prosecuted for genocide, and never will be. And even now, Deb Haaland, the Native cabinet member, won't use the word. She'll talk, so she'll say, cultural assimilation. No, it's not cultural assimilation. It is destroying a people by first taking away, you know, multiple facets here. Take their lives, sterilize the, uh, the, the, the girls, rip away generation after generation of connection to your family. Th think about this. 150 years. There were generations that, that, that really believed once you had children, the government just took them because that's what had been happening. This was, this was what life was for a Native person until 1969, and I would argue later than that. Now, and look, and when we talk about 408 federally uh, funded schools throughout 37 states, and that includes over 20 in Alaska and, and over half a dozen in, in Hawaii, there are also many schools, like here in Seneca Territory, that weren't federally funded. They were state funded. So you, you've got some places that, and there were many that were just totally run by churches and, and funded by churches. And these pri primarily were federally funded and operated by, uh, by churches. I've said it before, I would argue that the foundation of the clergy sex abuse scandal that, that people now are willing to talk about start here. I mean, you, you basically had children whose parents couldn't even check on them. You had power of attorney over those children. If those children had any money that was, that was due to them, I mean, think about the Osage, for instance. You could take their money. I mean, you, if they had any money coming in, you know, through, you know, through leases or, or whatever else, whatever, you know, the, these federal Indian money programs and that kind of thing, these, these schools could just take it and use it however, and they could line their pockets, they could fund their schools with it. And they, were, and they were run by churches. And they weren't schools. The kids weren't educated. They were indoctrinated into, into religion, had their names taken, uh, changed, their hair cut off. They, were, they learned to march. The, the girls learned how to be housemaids to white people. But there was no education. No doctors and lawyers came out of this thing, or if there were, they were very much the exception to the rule. And usually, they were just somebody to make an example of. Oh, I mean, Carlisle, they loved the idea that, that look, they, they used the athleticism of these kids and had kids playing men in football. Say, look, look how good they are. Look what we could do with these kids. So they didn't mind putting on a show for people. I mean, it, the, it is so angering to even talk about this stuff. 
So, and so what, what's Deb Haaland proposing? She's going to do a year-long tour going from native ter territory to native territory so people can tell their stories to her. Do we really need to go through this again? You have research you could do. So you personally, and you're going to send your, your folks to our territories? Well, we got a lot, of, lot to talk to you about besides what you did for 150 years to our children. And again, let me say it again, 150 years. Now, not every territory had that full 150 years of, uh, of these things happening to them, but many of them did. So you had generation after generation after generation of family separation. You had uh, people, uh, women and men who had no idea how to be mothers and fathers. It was taken from them. That was taken from them. It wasn't just that the culture was taken away, the language was taken away, our ceremonies, they all, all those things were. And the historical trauma, the intergenerational trauma, isn't just the family separation. Look, we call ourselves umwe umwe. And that means that we are a real human being. And to be a real human being, you have to be tied to the land, to the earth. Look, our, our, our names, you know, I'm Gunyagahog. I'm, I'm, people know it as Mohawk. Gunyagahog, people of the land of Flint, the land of Flint. I'm talking to you here in, in Seneca territory, Ununduwaga, the people of the big hills, the great hills or the mountains. The land, the people of that place. What we call ourselves. Our land is, is, is in, our, in the names that we call ourselves. Ungwe means real, original, forever, in both directions, in the past and in the future. But then when you cut that off and you take our lands because you stripped our children away, you've managed to deplete our population. Look, you know, by the mid to late 1800s, our population had diminished from being tens of millions of native people to, to under a quarter of a million. Just over 200,000 native people survived this. During that 150 years, we had the, that was the largest period of land loss. I mean, we, and we lost as many lives during this period of time because during this period of time, they were still killing us, mind you. The, you know, Sand Creek and Wounded Knee and, and, and all of these massacres, they, they all took place during this time. But we also lost our identity. No, we didn't lose it. It was taken. You know, I, I say this, and, and it almost pains me to say it, but by the time we come out of, uh, you know, get to 1960s, we are taking our cues about our identity from Hollywood, from Hollywood. We're wearing Plains Indian headdresses even as, as Haudenosaunee. When the, the, that famed group of chiefs went down to Washington to declare war against the Axis powers in World War II, they weren't wearing Plains Indian headdresses. They weren't wearing gustoas. They weren't wearing they were dressed like they were on the scene of Daniel Boone for crying out loud because that had been stripped away. We didn't know any better.
We've learned since then. Look, our sovereignty movement that is born almost, you know, when, when this, board, this boarding school period ends, we've learned more about who we are. We've reclaimed more of our culture, more of our language, more of our identity since then than we were able to retain through that 150 years of residential schools. So we lost the largest period of land loss and the largest period of identity loss. And now, identity loss, let's talk about this because we're not just talking about identity. We're talking about autonomy. Our sovereignty was diminished. Of course our sovereignty was diminished. Our land bases were diminished. So you wanna to talk to me about reorienting <laughs> federal services? I don't think we need your help with language. I think we've got some land back issues. We've got some land back issues we gotta address. We have some sovereignty issues. You can't even fully embrace <laughs> the weak document from the, from the United Nations, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. You can't even embrace this. Free prior and informed consent. The minimum standard for our survival and dignity laid out, and that's what it says right in the document, you can't meet that standard. So now you're going to do this, this you're going to enter into volume two, so you can assess how much money you guys paid and, and try to narrow down some numbers of, uh, of marked and unmarked burial sites. That's the next goal. Like we really, I mean, like we really care how much money you spent. You started funding this thing in in the early 1800s, and it would continue. And in fact, I would argue much of this continues today, and it continues in the form of foster care. It continues in in the form of still very antagonistic relationships with child services. I mean, not much ended in 1969. In fact, we talk about the 60 scoop. We talk about all the children that were taken through in, in through foster care. When, when Maine did their Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it had less to do with residential schools and more to do with foster care. Because that's where you went. That's what you went to after, after uh, boarding schools and residential schools. Same on the Canadian side. And you exported this crap to, to Africa, to South America, to uh, New Zealand, to Australia, and of course to Canada. And of course, this wasn't just your quote unquote federally recognized tribe. You did this to Hawaiian people. You did it to Alaska natives. And again, it's genocide. It's denationalization. It's stripping us away of our identity our autonomy, our sovereignty, and our lands. And so there will be a lot of attention. I've talked about this before. There's going to be a lot of attention to the, to the injuries that children um, had inflicted upon them, the deaths, the murders, the abuse, the rape. We're going to, have a, we're, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about those who didn't survive, and we're going to talk about those who did survive. So we're going to talk about the individual crimes that took place against Native children for 150 years. 
But are we going to address why those crimes took place? That it was about genocide? Because every any program that you want to put in place that you think is going to um, ease our suffering, you know what eases our suffering? Land back. Recognition of our sovereignty. You know, again, I can't get away from some of Deb Haaland's failings on the gaming issue because just like the the Civilization Act that starts this thing, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, it was a, these are racist laws. And I know, I've talked about the, uh, critical race theory. Oh, dir dirty words if you're on the right. Critical race theory. Critical race theory is the intersection of racism and law. Well, for all of the causation and cause and effect um, correlation between what the black experience has been since slavery, many of the laws don't specifically cite a racist doctrine. They just got interpreted and implemented. The GI Bill denied black people, you know, home loans. Redlining isn't written into the law, it's just it's written into the practice. The laws that were used to, to dismantle and commit genocide against Native people was written in there, and it says it. The, the, the intent is clear. Genocide, a lot of the thing, a lot of the, the thing about genocide is it, it's not just killing. It's not just doing bodily harm. It's not just creating conditions. It's doing these things with the intent to destroy us. And there was no question about that. There was never a, any question about what the United States' intent was. And when they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, the intent was clear. We're not going to let Native people do their own gaming. We're going we're gonna to take something away from them. We're going to take control. And we're going, to, we're going to bolster up the states. Even in places where Native people have pushed the states away, we're going to force them in bed together. These are racist laws. And, and I'm just using those two because, you know, obviously it's been a hot topic here in Seneca Territory. And the failure, I mean, so the laws are racist enough, but then, I mean, just like with the, the boarding school issue, it was racist enough to create them. But then the cover-up and, and the failure to ever do anything, even as you were, you were doing reports and you knew what was happening, even though you knew the abuses were happening, you did nothing, just like with gaming. Even though... <laughs> There have been administrations for over 30 years that have let the states screw Native people. Interior departments, Deb Highland, you, and your predecessors, but you, you let this stuff continue over and over and over again? The laws are racist enough, but your failures to do anything close to the right thing make those racist laws even more racist. And it doesn't matter if you stick a native person in that position and make him a judge or make him a Supreme Court justice for that matter, or a cabinet member or a president or a congressman. None of that stuff matters because they're your people. They aren't ours.
I mean, d- does Deb Haaland really have to travel around the country doing her fashion show on every goddamn territory and get her photo ops in to address this? How is it possible that you can't document how many children went to these schools? What were you funding? You, you were paying for this stuff. Of course you knew. And you knew that they were dying. You knew that our children were dying there. But that was okay, because the real goal was to destroy us. And, and look, I can sit here and sound real bold and say, you know, but it didn't work. We're still here. Oh, it did work. You destroyed plenty. Every child who went to a residential school was harmed. Even the ones who don't know it. Even the ones that were conditioned in these schools and were not necessarily physically abused. Every ch- you know, many died, but every, every child died some. Why? Because the policy was kill the Indian, save the man. You can't kill a part of somebody and then say, well, we didn't really mean kill um, in spite of how many people died. No, you did. You meant kill. And, and if a little white kid could come out of that, a little American, and not really a good American, but one that could, like, dig ditches and, you know, mop floors, because we're not going to – we don't need them at any place but the bottom rungs of our society. Barely human. I mean, you, how can you – imagine creating a law that takes one group of people – and does this to them? And we have to have a debate about critical race theory? Really? Laws that do this for 150 years to one recognizable, although we're very diverse. And you even use that diversity. You, you did that so you could break us up and not allow pockets of Mohawk children or Seneca children or Oneida children or Navajo children to congregate. Now we'll split them up, send them all over. Sometimes kids were sent thousands of miles away from home. And many of the children who died, died trying to escape the, these places. Tanny Wenjack. Many children died trying to escape these things. Many children died trying to avoid ever going in the first place. I'm sorry. This initial report gets an F because it's effing disgusting. It is such a misdirection. And look, for every one of you on Facebook or Twitter or any place else, YouTube, praising Deb Haaland for this work, shame on you. Shame on you for buying into this BS. I mean, this is incredibly um, terrible. It's incredibly terrible. Look, if the numbers are ever really done, and look, on the Canadian side, after they, they already did the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. They even wrote some checks already. But they never implemented any of the, of the I think, over 90 um, you know, action items, including identifying burial sites. When Canada, if the, when everybody, when all the Native territories are able 
to finally get in to investigate these sites, those numbers are probably going to be in the 30,000 range of, of, of dead children, children who died there. And, and it still will have a really large margin of error because of not just, I'm not just talking about bad record, record keeping, because let's be honest here, churches keep pretty good records, but they bury them, they burn them, they destroy them. So it's not like the records weren't, weren't kept. And they had to get paid. They had to get paid by the, by the Canadian and the, and the U.S. governments. So how do you think they got paid if they didn't fill, you know, fill out paperwork? Yeah, there, there may have been some, you know, some other shenanigans associated with that where, where reporting was suspect. But there was reporting. And on the U.S. side, the reporting was probably even more stringent. They knew. They knew what they were doing. They knew how many they were doing it to. And when you look at the, at the grave sites, in, uh, uh, the marked graves in, at Carlisle Indian School, and you realize that some of them say unknown on the, on the grave site, on the grave marker, how could you have a child that you killed or allowed to die, put them in the ground, and you didn't know their name? Well, part of the reason is because you were stripping them. You didn't want to put their native name on. Maybe they hadn't gotten a, um, a biblical name yet. Look, this this is is angering. I mean, this this just makes me angry. And and look, I don't know why they did this other than just pure, you know, showmanship. Why, why even do this initial report with so little information? I mean, look, the dates are easy. We knew that. There's nothing new here. In fact, it's still more of the same. And an emphasis on on what you did to our culture. Not what you did to our identity, not what you did to our sovereignty, not what you did to our autonomy and our distinction, just our culture. I mean, it is a bit of an acknowledgement uh, that, the, that this thing had the intent to dispossess of lands, dispossess us of lands. You know, of course, we always knew that. And, and I will say that that's probably the only admission here in this report that caught me a little bit by surprise. Not that that's what it is but that you admitted it. But the crazy part is, even though you acknowledge <laughs> this dispossession of our lands, there's no talk about restoration of lands. There's no talk about restoring who we were. Our, look, there are crimes committed against individuals here. No question about it. I mean, Deb Hallen's own parents went to these schools, and they were assimilated. And they had a little girl who ran for Congress and became, you know, you know, a, a great American. Why? Because the schools were successful. Because they worked. They stripped us of land. They stripped us of identity. And did everything they possibly could to make us, if we were strong enough to survive the punishment, the abuse, you know, if we could defy death at these schools, then they would make us Americans. And, I, and I'm going to tell you, it's not like they anticipated that, uh, you know, one day, you know, we would, we, we'd have people that would be so American we'd run for Congress. But, you know, i got to say that. I, maybe check that a little bit. You know, it's funny thing because this stuff starts with Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, for him, it was an either-or thing. 
We make the muscle or kill him. You know, flat out. And he wasn't the only one. This is what senators and interior department folks, we will civilize them or they must be destroyed. I mean, that's what they said. Senator Harlan, they must be destroyed. If we cannot be folded in to the American family of humanity. So, I mean, they, we weren't humans. But if we, if we couldn't somehow muster, and, and, they, and they even complained then about how much it was costing. They didn't talk about what they were gaining. Millions and millions of native of, of acres of land, native lands. Just how much it was costing them. And you know what? It was cheaper if we died. It was cheaper if we just died in these schools than for them. You know, and, and it's not because they were spending tons of money on us. Look, by, by any standards, what Native children experience in terms of malnutrition, gross poverty. Look, our children were working fields, raising crops for these schools to sell. And yet our people were, were grossly underfed. Grossly underfed. I, I imagine, I mean, think about how bad that is. That you're starving and then you're working in the fields picking food for somebody else. I mean, that's that's you know, that's almost like a, a, a that's a, that's a cruelty that is it's almost beyond description. And our children died of any number of things, including abuse. And because our children were being physically abused and they didn't have proper medical attention, some of the injuries that they would get working in, in dangerous situations or getting hurt you know, because of physical abuse would, would never get treated properly. You know, kids that would come out of schools with, with disfigurement, broken bones that were never healed right. Girls who had to suffer the indignity, not only of sterilization, but a constant number, a level of, uh, of you know, they, they would be constantly looked at and checked out. They would be inspected to see if their virginity was intact. And look, not only did children go to these schools, but children were born in these schools because of the rape. And some of those children, there, there's these horror stories of, a, of, you know, of a priest getting a young girl pregnant and then them, and them killing the baby, sometimes in, in an incinerator or buried. We're never going to know the total numbers. Look, I don't care how much ground-penetrating radar there is. I don't care how much... Digging is done. We're talking about 150 years. Look, our bodies are, are not designed. Our, our, our bodies are designed to go back to our mother. So no, you're not going to find the remains. You know, and then that's a whole other debate on what do you do with the remains of, of Native people you find in these schools? Do they, do they return home? Well, half of those territories were, were eradicated during this period of time. There is no going home. As I said earlier, Many times, these children had no families to return to. So if they made it out of those schools, oftentimes they went directly into foster care or, in, or you know, the, look, the easy out for the, for the 
for the boys was just to enlist them. And, and the irony of native boys going into the military is that a school designed to, to destroy much of our identity, including our language, would produce soldiers that they would try to militarize our language in terms of code talkers. Oh, and we're going to sit there and sing, and sing the praises. Oh, how, the, how native people say, won the war with our language. That was, that was a, a gross exploitation. 150 years of residential schools destroying the language that the military said, you know what? It's probably not a bad thing that we destroyed the language because now there's fewer people who could break the code. But let's find the few people that, that still speak it. Let's find the Navajo. Let's find the Mohawks. Let's find, let's find all of the Choctaw. Let's find those who can speak the language and we'll, we'll use them to beat the Japanese who were able to break our codes, to beat the Germans who could break our codes. I mean, it, it's like a slap in the face. And, and now we're going to pretend that this exploitation of our young men and our language made our young men heroes. I, I don't even know how to fully wrap my head around that. But there's a direct connection there. And in fact, there are so many direct connections to the abuses that took place during this 150 years of residential schools that it is, it is really a miracle. And I don't say that in the religious sense, but I mean, it's incredible that, that, that we are here today, that we survived. But I got to say, many didn't. You know, and look, the United States boasts, oh yeah, there's 575 federally recognized tribes. No, there aren't. No, there aren't. There are 575 entities that you call tribes. We didn't call them that, call ourselves that. That you call now you've managed to take the Oneidas and divide them into a few groups. You take every every group and you and you divide them into two or three different groups, and then you say, Oh yeah, three different nations. No, it was one until you got your hands on it, until we got forced to move here and forced to move there. Then you give us these crappy names that are sometimes French, sometimes, you know, have a you know, Saint Regis Mohawks, really? Really? Lac de Flambeau, Coeur d'Alene, I mean, uh, Colville. I mean, these are, these are names of places that have nothing to do with who we are. You, you know, Sioux? No, not Lakota, Sioux. And then you Cheyenne River Sioux. I mean, the, the Tuscarora down in North Carolina, most of them call themselves Lumbies after the Lumberton River. I mean, just make up names. Just make up names. And then some you won't even recognize anyway. I mean, so we get destroyed. Then you, and, and keep in mind, when I talk about our autonomy and our distinction, there was a period of time called the termination period where because of this 150 years of, of genocide, stripping us from the land, stripping our identity and our autonomy, you can say, oh, no, you're not those people anymore. You went out of your way. You spent, well, I don't know how much money you spent, but you spent 150 years doing it, destroying our identity. And then you say, oh, well, you, the problem is that you, you're not those people anymore. You created that problem. And you know what? We always have, we, we have a survival instinct. You know, we, we, talk, we call it resiliency, right? We have the elders. We have some people that are going to hang on to 
enough. I mean, there was a Mike and the Mechanics song a few years ago. I always, I always bring this up. People think I'm crazy. Uh, teach your children quietly because someday sons and daughters will rise up and fight where we stood still. Pledge allegiance to the flag, whatever flag they offer. Let them, never let them know how you truly feel. Look, we had a whole lot of people that, that were duping the hell out of, um, out, uh, you know, out of our oppressors. And very quietly, we still did ceremony. Very quietly, we remembered our songs. Not every place. You know, the whole effort to, re to re relearn our songs, we didn't need your help doing it. We went, I mean, the Warrior Society, people know the Warrior Society, right? The Warrior Society started as a singing society. The first thing that those young men did was go to some of the other territories. Went to Six Nations and Tandanega and different places. So, so those young men can learn the songs that, that they weren't singing in Gunawaga anymore. Why weren't they singing them there? Because of residential schools. Because of the punishment and the torture that these kids went through. You know, and some territories were much more targeted. When we say 83%, there were some territories where it was a clean sweep. Take every child out of here because, because we don't want those people surviving. Mohawks oftentimes were, were, were very highly targeted for residential schools. Whether they were the, the federal ones on the Canadian or U.S. side or whether they were the, the, just the church-run ones or the ones run by the province or whatever else. We need to destroy the Mohawks. And not just the Mohawks. I, you know, I, can speak, I speak that because I am Mohawk. But there were native regions that were much more heavily targeted than others. You know, look, and I, I remember listening to Charles Trimble writing in the Indian country today saying, oh, I thought the residential school experience was good for me. He was already a Christian. He already spoke the, spoke the language. And he loved playing Jesus, uh, you know, or, or Joseph in, in, in the school play. Yeah, it wasn't bad for you. You didn't have to go through any assimilation. You were, that work was done already. But many, many children struggle. I mean, and again, even Charles Trimble was, was harmed by these. Everybody was. So what are you going to learn Deb, what, Deb, when you go to, to each one of these territories and spend this next year going from community to community, what are you going to learn that you don't already know? I mean, it, I can't help but think that this is a dog and pony show. And you know what? The, you know, everybody says, oh, trigger alert. We're going we're gonna to show you this report. The trigger alert is when Deb Hallen comes to town. And she's going to want a bunch of people to stand up and cry in front of her. And we're going to exchange tissues. And we're going to talk about the horrors that some people remember. And you know what? Some of those horrors are going to be dismissed as, well, we're not sure that you're really remembering that accurately. Are you sure that really took place? Or is this stuff been embellished over the years? No, we're, there's going to be a certain amount of victim shaming. It won't be made public, but it'll happen. And what are you going to do to make it right? On the Canadian side, you know what they did? They wrote checks. You're going to write us checks? What, what monetary value do you put on 150 years of genocide? 150, look, and that's just genocide in this manner. 
Genocide's been going on for 500 years. But from a residential school standpoint, this was a U.S. federal policy administered through Congress under the guise of the Civilization Act to commit genocide for 150 freaking years. And what are you going to do to pay? What, and who are you going to write checks to? Everybody? The survivors? What, what about the land that was lost? What about the sovereignty that was diminished? What about the termination? We get into this debate about federal recognition. I call it FedREC. F-E-D-W-R-E-C-K. You even tried to do this in Hawaii. You're going to recognize us as a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States? What happened to free prior and informed consent? Free prior and informed consent. What happened to that? Even this document is so afraid to address the, the, even the suggestion that any of us would want to assert ourselves as nation states. In fact, the word sovereignty only shows up in this document once. And it's not talking about us. It's talking about the sovereignty of the states, the nation states that are violating the rights of indigenous people. Oh, nothing in this, nothing in this document is, uh, is intended to um, uh, interfere with the sovereignty of the nation states. I mean, this period of land loss and this period of, uh, of our loss of autonomy and distinction, sovereignty, is tied directly to what the goal of this was. I mean, we, we talk about things like um, how they were operated. But are we going to really talk about why they were? You know, and... and and in some places, there was still a really big and open debate. In New York was different than some of the other places. That's why they, New York had its own residential schools. Because the federal government looked the other way while the state was trying to make, uh, uh, make treaty payments, which were pathetic, until the New York State did a, a whole program where they, they, um, where they did an analysis, and they said, wait a second. We think the native people have a lot more coming, but it's not our obligation. It's the federal government's obligation. They found out, we've been paying all this stuff, and you know, and it's crazy because it's still happening, really. Think about, think about um, the clinics on native territory, even the one right here. Most of the money that comes into the clinic, I mean, everything all comes from, uh, from Indian Health Services, but the first thing they make every native person do if they don't have insurance is apply for, you know, for Medicare. And, and, they and so the, the state's big nut, which is like a, you know, I don't know, something like a billion dollars a week for Medicare. Some of that, I mean, the state should have no obligation to, to cover the, the, the expense at our clinic. It should all be the federal government. Why? Because that's the, the deal the federal government made. They were, made a commitment to see to that we had health care as they were stripping away our means to sustain our own uh, lands and, and have a sustainable life where we can take care of ourselves and provide for our, our own health. No, you took that away when you put us on parts of the land that no longer could support, support our lives as we had them. So you could take the land. You, you regarded our land as excessive. We had more land than we needed, especially after you stripped away our kids and you diminished our population through 150 years of residential schools. 
there's no other way to talk about Indian boarding schools slash residential schools without talking about genocide. And I don't mean cultural genocide, Murray Sinclair. I mean genocide, the killing, the physical abuse, the mental abuse, the creating of conditions that intended to destroy us, the sterilization programs, and the stealing of our children for generation after generation after generation. And now what do we have? We have situations where we are still struggling. 1969, call it the 1970s. It's not that long ago. We have had, we've had generations that have struggled with parenting, struggled with communities. Why? Because our communities were decimated. They were reduced. We were, they were relocated. You did that. You did that with 150 years of residential schools. So no, am I, am I clapping and cheering Deb Hallin's release of, you know, volume one? No, I'm not. I think it's a huge disappointment. I think it's a slap in the face. But we're going to stay on you. <laughs> but we know, we know that even as you're doing this, there's other things you're not doing. You're not dealing with a gaming issue. You're not dealing with, with some of the contamination issues. You're not dealing with missing and murdered indigenous women. Oh, you're going to throw that in as a, as a conversation associated with this. But it's not the same thing. All I can say is, shame on you, Deb Hallin, really. Because you're going to spend the next year yourself and, and then I hear, no, we're going to put $7 million. You know what $7 million is? Hell. The state just screwed the Senecas out of half a billion. And you you're think we're going to get all jazzed because, oh, yeah, Congress is going to give $7 million towards this initiative. Hell, you guys will swallow that up in just your bureaucracy. There'll be no real implementation. You settled the Cabell suit, which might have been 40 to $100 billion worth of negligence and theft for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, thank you, Barack Obama. That was you that did that. You settled stealing uranium from the, from the Navajo for pennies on the dollar. And it always looks like a big check, right? It always looks like a big check when you throw that number. And then you realize, yeah, but divide that immensely uh, against the, the entire population, and you're talking about you know, hundreds of dollars. We lost all this for that, for hundreds of dollars? Or you say, well, you take this check now or you risk not ever getting anything. So well, here's your $1,500. All right, so that's my assessment. Um, look, I'm going to try to get Preston McBride on to talk. And you know, maybe he's got a better, more cheery <laughs> um, outlook on this thing than I do. Um, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm wrong. And uh, maybe somebody can tell me... Um, how all of this is a good thing. I just don't see it. So I want to thank you for listening. Uh, we'll do it again. We'll do it again next week. This is John Gain, and this is Resistance Radio.